PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, and welcome to the July issue. I'm Becky Craig, and I am Editor-in-Chief. Delighted to be with you today. I live right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and this is a gorgeous summer day. The sunshine is beautiful. The sky is blue. It's a perfect summer day. So I hope that wherever you are, you're enjoying the weather, or at least can look out and see good weather. The July volume has 11 articles, and probably the theme that's most common across the articles is a longitudinal study. So we're going to talk about several trials today or observational studies today that have looked at their subjects in a longitudinal fashion. I thought each of the articles had a good take-home message. The first article is entitled, Race Differences, Identification of Community-Dwelling Women at Risk for Poor Health Outcomes, using walking speed, osteoarthritis initiative study. The authors are Carmen Kirkness and Jin Ma Ren from Department of Internal Medicine, Center for Outcomes Research, University of Illinois, and College of Medicine at Peoria, Peoria, Illinois. This is a study that was conducted between 2004 and 2006 as part of the osteoarthritis initiative which was a longitudinal, multi-center, public-private partnership that involved observing persons with NEOA between the ages of 45 and 79 years of age. They ended up collecting information on nearly 4,800 persons with NEOA. So this is a substantial study, and this is a secondary analysis of some of the work that came from that study. In this portion, the group that was studied here, there were 2,648 women and men who were, as I said before, 45 to 79 years of age, 23% of whom were African American. Now, for those of you who use gait speed, and certainly there's been a big emphasis recently to use a stopwatch, mark off a distance, and calculate gait speed for patients because it certainly seems to be an indicator of, in some cases, mortality, need for increased mobility. There are lots of indications that gait speed has been suggested useful for. And this study, the authors were really interested in finding out whether there were racial differences in walking speed. And by that, I mean less than one meter per second or greater than one meter per second. In this 45 to 79 year range, one meter per second walking speed can be viewed as sort of a usual stroll. The authors found that there was a significant difference in walking speed between African-American women and white American women. And the difference was um, the African-American women walked at 1.19 and the white American women walked at 1.33 meters per second. So this is a clinically significant difference as well as a statistically significant difference. 
the authors looked at other factors that could affect walking speed, and, and that included socioeconomic factors, higher values for disease severity, and higher prevalence of obesity and comorbidities. And even when controlling for that, there was still a difference um, between the two populations. So the authors suggest that race was associated with the risk of having walking speed of less than 1.0, and that those who walked more slowly also had variables associated such as obesity and comorbidity. So the question to you as clinicians is when a person comes in in that age range who is an African-American, first of all, the gold standard should not be what we usually think of, which might be 1.25, because that is not the gold standard for the African-American woman. And the second take-home message is, can you begin to suggest that nutrition is a good activity to undertake, better nutrition to try and decrease NEOA? So I think it's a very well-done study, and I encourage you to read it. The next study is entitled Cardiovascular Stress-Induced by a Whole-Body Vibration Exercise in Individuals with Chronic Stroke. The authors are Lin Rong Liao and colleagues. Come from the Department of Physiotherapy at Gu Wangdong Provincial Work Injury Rehabilitation Hospital at Gu Wangzhou, China. Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at Hong Kong Polytechnic University, Hong Kong, China and the School of Allied Health Sciences, Griffith University, Gold Coast, Australia. Many of you have heard about whole body vibration. Basically, you stand on the platform and it vibrates. And there is evidence in the literature that standing on this platform that vibrates may help facilitate strength, balance recovery in a variety of populations. These authors were really interested in taking it sort of another step, and that is if individuals had a stroke, is this vibration going to cause uh, secondary problems? So what are the cardiovascular stress that is introduced when a person is being vibrated? And I have to applaud the office for a really carefully constructed research design. So basically what they did was they selected 48 subjects who had had a stroke previously, a chronic stroke, and they were interested in putting them on the vibrating platform either with no vibration, low-intensity body, whole-body vibration, or high-intensity whole-body vibration. And while they were standing on this platform, they did exercises. They did six different exercises, which are depicted in Figure 1. I encourage you to look at that. And each exercise lasted three minutes. So I figured that the total time on the platform, if they would have done the exercises continuously, would have been 18 minutes. But they gave them a rest in between each exercise until the heart rate returned to baseline. So again, the interest that this group had or the purpose of the study was to see what kind of cardiovascular stress was induced by the whole body vibration. Basically, bottom line, is that it didn't seem to matter whether it was high or low intensity whole body vibration, so that didn't seem to have an effect. But either of the types of whole body vibrations significantly increased VO2 and also increased heart rate. Now, as I said, significantly. But then I would ask you to look at the amount of increase that they saw. So it increased 
by, I'm going to combine the two, by approximately 0.7 milliliters per kilogram per minute, and heart rate increased by an average of four beats per minute. So my question is, is that physiologically or clinically significant? The takeaway message for me is that if there's a value of whole body vibration and exercise, it doesn't appear that that value will be compromised by cardiovascular stress in this group of persons with chronic stroke. So thank you, authors, for a well-done study. The next study is entitled Longitudinal Evaluation of Muscle Composition Using Magnetic Resonance in Four Boys with Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, case series. Claudia Senesak and her colleagues are from the Departments of Physical Therapy and Physiology and Functional Genomics, University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. This is a very thoughtful paper. The four boys were studied over two years, so there were four time points over two years, where both MRI, which I think everybody knows about, but also magnetic resonance spectroscopy were used to basically describe the plantar flexors, the quality of the plantar flexor muscles over this period of time. Basically, they were able to carefully describe the changes that occurred. Those of you who are familiar with muscular Duchenne muscular dystrophy know that over time, the skeletal muscle fibers get replaced with lipid or what we usually say adipose tissue or fat, if you will and the children end up with inability to walk because it often affects lower extremities to a greater degree. So the authors demonstrate that both techniques, the MRI and MRS, are non-invasive but provide a careful objective description of the muscle pathology as it changes over time and occurs and can be used for both ambulatory and non-ambulatory children. So again, as a diagnostic or to watch progression, or in this case, regression of the muscle over time. The next paper is entitled, Knee Extensor Power Relates to Mobility Performance in People with Knee Osteoarthritis, Cross-Sectional Analysis. The authors are Angela Asatura and her colleagues from the School of Rehabilitation Sciences, McMaster University, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. One of the authors is Paul Stratford, and he serves as one of our statistical reviewers for the journal, and I always appreciate his thoughtfulness, not only in doing his reviews of the manuscripts, but also in writing. So I knew when I saw his name in the title, I would be impressed with the study. I think it's going to be a great contribution to the literature. The other theme that comes up this month are sort of challenging our thoughts, all right, our beliefs or our principles. So how often have we heard the notion that persons with NEOA should do quadriceps strengthening exercises? Or if you're aging and you want to perhaps prevent NEOA, you should make sure that you continue to do stair ascent and stair descent to exercise your quadriceps. You should do exercises in the gym. So that's sort of a principle that's in the public domain even. So the authors were interested in looking to see whether it was knee extensor power or knee extensor strength that served as a better predictor. So these are persons who have knee OA 
and it's been validated very carefully in the method that describes how the persons were identified who had NEOA. The participants ranged in age between 40 and 70 years of age and could not participate if they used an assistive device or if they were unable to go up to flights of nine stairs. And there are other contraindications to participation, but I think those were the two that I wanted to emphasize. The main variable that they were interested in was stair climbing. Although they looked at the six-minute walk and they looked at stair descent, they really were interested in stair climbing because that's a common ADL activity. And basically what they found in this particular sample is that power, not strength, explained the greatest variance in all the models that they tested. So I think that's very important to consider. When we think of persons doing something to affect the performance of the quadriceps, often in my mind comes a picture of a person doing a slow quadriceps knee extension with a weight on or an isometric contraction. And what these authors are really asking therapists to consider is power. Now, it turns out that power is the ability to generate force rapidly. So back to our stair ascent, that makes sense. The other sort of interesting thing that I had not heard before is that with age, decline in muscle power is twice as pronounced as decline in muscle strength. So again, the authors present a very carefully done investigation and I think really bring to the fore the issue of whether we should consider power training rather than strength training. The final thing I want to say about this study is they also found that BMI also was a significant contributor to explain the variance in all the tasks, meaning those who had a higher BMI were slower in the six-minute walk test, were slower in stair ascent and stair descent. Now, again, this is a wonderful opportunity for physical therapists to begin to think about nutrition advice. The next article is entitled, Longitudinal Relationship Among Physical Fitness, Walking-Related Physical Activity, and Fatigue in Children with Cerebral Palsy. The authors are Astrid Balamans and her colleagues. They come from the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine, MOVE Research Institute in Amsterdam, and the EMGO Plus Institute for Health and Care Research, VU University Medical Center, Amsterdam, the Netherlands. According to these authors, there has not been a longitudinal investigation of the relationship between physical fitness, physical activity, and fatigue in children with cerebral palsy. This is a study that involved 24 children who had a diagnosis of bilateral spastic CP, or cerebral palsy, and 22 children who had a diagnosis of unilateral spastic cerebral palsy. They ranged in age from 7 to 13 years. The longitudinal analysis was done initially 6 months and at 12 months. This is a secondary analysis of a randomized control trial. I think it's interesting to see what one can gain, what additional analysis one can gain from a randomized control trial. And these authors certainly took advantage and asked another question of the data they collected. Again, this is another assumption that we make. The assumption is that as children get older, they 
slow down in their physical activity, and that's because they're deconditioned and fatigued. The question is, where is the beginning of the cycle? Are they deconditioned, which leads to limit their physical activity, or does the level of involvement with the cerebral palsy prevent them from being physically active? And the randomized uh, multi-component physical activity intervention trial that was conducted using fitness training and lifestyle intervention showed no effect in this sample on physical fitness and walking-related physical activity levels. So they provided an intervention to try to change the amount of physical fitness or the amount of walking-related physical activity, and it didn't happen. So the authors are therefore saying, okay, let's just look at the children themselves. Their hypothesis is that if physical fitness changes in children over time, this change will be related to a change in physical activity level and to a change in fatigue. What they discovered was in the children with bilateral cerebral palsy, all fitness parameters were associated with a walking-related physical activity level, meaning less fit, lower levels of walking activity. There was no association between physical fitness and physical activity level in children with unilateral cerebral palsy. So, again, the findings were surprising, and the authors aren't sure yet what to make. The sample is small. Additional investigation needs to be done. Probably the final comment is that fatigue was not an indicator of lower physical activity level. I think this is an interesting study that will help those of you who are working with children to consider how are you striving to achieve physical fitness and is there a relationship between what you're doing in your interventions and the child's ability to be engaged in physical activity walking. The next study is entitled Physical Therapist Management of Patients in the Neurological Intensive Care Unit, Description of Practice. Peter Sotile and colleagues are from the School of Medicine, University of Colorado, Aurora, Colorado. I liked this study a lot. This is a retrospective study that really is just going back and looking at, in the old days we call them charts, but patient information to describe how physical therapists are associated with patients within the neurological intensive care unit. Now, there have been some papers that have described certain particular aspects of a neurological intensive care unit that they refer to. So there's one, for example, that talks about treating patients who have subarachnoid hemorrhage. But this was just a generic neurological intensive care unit, and they were interested in describing patient demographics, use of mechanical ventilation, intracranial pressure, monitoring, all that data were available in the patient record. And within each description of physical therapy, they had the length of the session and whether the session was held within the intensive care unit or after the person was discharged from the intensive care unit onto another floor. So they also had information about safety, including vital signs and falls and loss of lines, et cetera. The first thing is that in a year's period of time, there were 180 people admitted to the neurological intensive care unit. 86 were evaluated by a PT. So right off the bat, you say, how come only 48% of the patients who were admitted received physical therapy? There was a physical therapist available 
seven days, all right, so there was always physical therapy coverage. So if there was a need for a physical therapist, there was one there. And if there were additional patients, more therapists could be provided. So that wasn't the reason why only 48% were seen. The more you read this paper, the more interesting it becomes. Again, what you're seeing is sort of a window between January 1st and December 31st, 2012, at a large teaching hospital. And you see that in that period of time, in that window, physical therapy didn't begin until three days, most commonly, after the patient was admitted. Patients who were on mechanical ventilation received less physical therapy than those who did not. The patients with intracranial pressure monitoring received less frequent sessions than those who did not. So although there are studies to suggest that all these patients would benefit from physical therapy, again, the actual evidence of what's going on in this particular hospital in this window of time suggests that there's a gap between actual practice and what the literature is promoting. In addition, more physical therapy was given post-NICU admissions. So again, everything was done sort of, I think, with a mind of safety. And of the patients that were seen and all of the sessions that were reported, and I think they said 293 sessions were reported in the NICU and beyond, there was only one incident, and that was a person had an increase in intracranial pressure during exercise, so the session was stopped. That was the only report about safety. So look at this paper, and if you're in an acute care hospital in particular, if you're in an intensive care unit, really say, is this the way we should be practicing today with the literature that's available? This is a wonderful opportunity for physical therapists to get more engaged in the acute care setting and particularly in the neurologic intensive care unit. So I thank the authors. The next paper, now we're going to turn to an animal model. The Effects of Vibration Therapy on Immobilization-Induced Hypersensitivity in Rats. The authors are Yohei Hamaway and colleagues from the Unit of Rehabilitation Sciences and Unit of Physical and Occupational Therapy in Nagasaki University Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences, Nagasaki, Japan, and Department of Rehabilitation, Juzenkai Hospital, Nagasaki, Japan. I know that there are people who wear casts as a result of a fracture or a need for immobilization and that either during or after that immobilization, patients develop mechanical hypersensitivity and the mechanism is really not known. So these authors were interested in developing an animal model that could begin to see whether vibration applied to the limb that was immobilized would delay or prevent or reduce this immobilization-induced hypersensitivity. So there were 35 rats in the study. The right ankle was immobilized by a plaster cast for eight weeks, and there were three groups, those who were just immobilized only, those who were immobilized and received vibration immediately after casting, and those who were immobilized and didn't receive vibration until four weeks after casting. And basically what the authors suggest is that there, the vibration provided ended up inhibiting some of the hypersensitivity. 
Now, I'm not going to tell you what the features are of the vibration because I want you to read the article. But I do think that this paper begins to not only look at the effect of vibration on this immobilization-induced hypersensitivity, but also begins to look at the mechanisms. So I think it's a very good paper for those of you who are interested in pain management. The next paper is entitled Shoulder Strength and Physical Activity Predictors of Shoulder Pain in People with Paraplegia from Spinal Cord Injury, a prospective cohort study by Sarah J. Mulroy and colleagues. Those of you who know, Rancho Los Amigos is one of my favorite places. That's where Jackie Perry worked in the Gate Lab. And Sarah Mulroy and her colleagues are in that pathokinesiology laboratory at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center, Los Angeles, California. This is another myth buster and one that I found really interesting as well. So this is a three-year longitudinal study, and I was impressed that they were able to recruit 223 participants in wheelchairs who did not have shoulder pain at the time they were enrolled. So basically, they were enrolled and watched over a three-year period to see if they did develop shoulder pain and then what factors might be associated with that shoulder pain. So they measured a lot of variables, as you would expect. They had to be wheelchair users, first of all, and so they described the minimum amount of activity to be able to participate in the study. The variable that they concentrated on the most, though, were measurements of isometric shoulder torque, and they were collected at baseline at 18 months and three years. They also looked at daily activity using a wheelchair odometer and self-reported daily transfer and raised frequency data were collected by telephone every six weeks. So they're really looking at the relationship. Is there a relationship between strength and activity and then pain? And I forgot to tell you, the pain scale that they used is a wheelchair user's shoulder pain index that has been validated and demonstrated to be reliable. The conclusion is that individuals with paraplegia from spinal cord injury who were asymptomatic at study entry but developed shoulder pain over the three-year period had weaker maximal isometric shoulder torque than those who remained pain-free. But the overall reduction in risk of shoulder pain development from shoulder muscle weakness was small and not a useful clinical predictor. Daily physical activity was not related to risk of shoulder pain development. And those patients who developed pain were actually less active prior to the onset of their shoulder pain. So it just kind of just blows up all the thoughts, you know. So, again, the thought was these really active persons who are constant wheelchair users develop sort of an overuse syndrome, particularly if they're weak. So these authors challenge that sort of assumption that we've made. Now, one of the points that I would like to raise is they talked about peak maximal isometric torque. So they used a dynamometer to measure isometric torque. Now, go back to the paper that we talked about earlier uh, and people who had NEOA and the question of power versus strength. So I wonder whether the next study or another study that Mulroy and colleagues should take on is the relationship between 
power in the shoulder musculature and activity in the wheelchair and pain. So thank you very much. The next paper is case report. And this case report is entitled Constraint-Induced Movement Therapy After Injection of Botulinum Toxin Type A for a Patient with Chronic Stroke, One-Year Follow-Up Case Report. The authors are Satoru Amano and colleagues who are from the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine, the Hospital of Hyogo College of Medicine, Hyogo, Japan, Hyogo Prefectural Hospital in Nishi. Harama, Hyogo, Japan. This is a case report of a 66-year-old man who had had a stroke four years before the intervention. The case report carefully describes what happened prior to the initiation of the botulinum toxin injection. So basically, the person had a stroke and went through what we would expect to see in terms of usual care. So he was treated in the hospital, treated at home. He actually received, I guess we would call it intensive, in that it was rehab for two hours of standard rehabilitation every day for six months. So that's a long time, I think, for us in the United States to consider. Also, I should have said from the outset that his infarction was in the right posterior limb of the internal capsule. So it gives you a sense that he had left hemiparesis. And he, after being discharged from rehab, he also had home PT. When the physical therapist in this case report saw him, he had basically limited wrist extension. His MAS, which is a modified Ashworth scale, was a 1 plus for the elbow, 2 for the wrist, and 3 for the fingers. So you can see that there was apparent spasticity. His Fugelmeyer assessment was 44 out of 66, and his initial ARAT score was 31 of 57. They also looked at the motor activity log, and the score was 1.83, and he didn't appear to have cognitive disorder. So you have a sense that he had an involved upper extremity, one that would not allow him to be considered in the usual description of patients who are eligible for constraint-induced therapy. So what the author suggested was that the patient have an injection of botulinum toxin first and then engage in constraint-induced physical therapy, which is what happened. So he had an injection and then received five hours of constraint-induced movement therapy for 10 weekdays, so over a two-week period of time, and then followed up until one year post. And basically, it appears as though he continued to do well one year after the intervention. There was not the need to do an additional injection of botulinum toxin. So the authors suggest that this combination might be a way to help the more involved patient become a candidate for constraint-induced therapy. The next paper is called The Link Between Physical Activity and Cognitive Dysfunction in Alzheimer's Disease. This is a perspective written by Christy Phillips and her colleagues from Arkansas State University, Jonesboro, Arkansas, the School of Medicine, Air Seas University, Kayseri, Turkey, VA Palo Alto Healthcare System, Palo Alto, California, and the School of Medicine, Stanford University, Palo Alto, California. I really, really encourage every single one of you to read this perspective. 
as you know, sort of the explosion of two populations that need some sort of addressing cognitive therapy. One is autism and second is Alzheimer's disease. And this paper is very thoughtful in exploring the literature that's available related to exercise and being able to mitigate the cognitive decline. Now, as those of you who have followed the Alzheimer's disease history, there's not yet a drug that prevents Alzheimer's disease or prevents the progression in any substantial way of Alzheimer's disease. There are a couple of new discoveries that always make us excited, but at this point, the medications available to prevent the decline are not very powerful and certainly not universally used. And so the question is, does exercise do anything? So the authors really did a careful review of what is available in literature, and it does appear that physical activity, when engaged seriously over a period of time, does seem to be related to sort of, a, I'm not going to say preventing, but retarding the rate of Alzheimer's disease. So that's a hypothesis that needs to be tested in very carefully controlled studies. But please, these authors were really thoughtful in handling this topic, and I encourage you to read it. The final paper in the July issue is a continuation of our innovative technologies in rehabilitation and health promotion. This was a special series that was published in March, so if you haven't heard about it, please go back and look at that special series. It talks really about the relationships between new innovative technologies and physical therapy intervention and rehabilitation in general and health promotion. It's just a really wonderful special series. And this is another article in that grouping that just came along a little bit later. This one is a technical report, and it's entitled Design and Kinematic Evaluation of a Novel Joint-Specific Play Controller, Application for Wrist and Forearm Therapy. The authors are Joseph Crisco and colleagues from the Departments of Orthopedics and Pediatrics, the Warren Alpert School of Brown University and Rhode Island Hospital, Providence, Rhode Island. This is really a technical report. So the authors basically say, as we all know, um, that there's this assumption that more is better in terms of number of repetitions of exercise or number of times that one can walk down the hall if the goal is to reorganize the central nervous system. And so the authors were interested in enhancing practice for children with cerebral palsy. And so what they did was to develop and in this paper evaluate the accuracy of a play controller, play like playing games, in measuring wrist flexion and extension. So if you look at figure three, you'll see that they came up with a gadget so that if the child does the appropriate wrist extension, there's a little car that moves so they can guide the movement of the car by their wrist movement to encourage them to go through extension range of motion at the wrist. So the gadget was demonstrated to be accurate, and the next step for this group is to try it on a sample of children with cerebral palsy. This study was done with able-bodied children. So that takes care of July. I hope enjoy your summer or your winter wherever you are. I look forward to seeing you in August. Thanks for listening. 
If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org. And be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.